Well, good evening uh, and welcome. Uh, for those who are new or here for the first time, my name is Jordan. I'm the assistant pastor, and we've been working through a series on 1 Corinthians, the book of 1 Corinthians, and some of the problems that the church in Corinth faced. And uh, we are not studying the entire book, but we have picked out some of the key problems in this church, and we are looking at the passages that deal with those problems. So if you turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, this uh, chapter deals with lawsuits, but uh, more importantly, it deals with conflict in the church. And Paul um, expresses his frustration with some of the conflict that he was seeing in the Christian church. Uh, we'll read verses 1 um, all the way till 11. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And... Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Why don't we come before him in prayer? Father in heaven, uh, we, we do thank you um, that you are not silent, but that you speak to our hearts and that your spirit actually convicts our hearts and changes our lives, changes our worldview, changes our perspective. And we do pray, Lord, that you would give us understanding, help us to see and understand what your word is teaching us tonight. Use it, Lord, um, to encourage us, to build us up in the faith, and to challenge us if need be. But ultimately, Lord, um, we pray that you would be gracious to us and that you would help us to do all that you instruct us to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This week I was reading an article in USA Today, and there was this um, article titled, 25 of the Most Outrageous Lawsuits in the United States. I'll just read some of them to you. There was this one woman, she sued a jelly bean company because she didn't know that jelly beans had sugar in them. 
One man sued a, the girl that he went out on a date with uh, for spending too much time on her phone when in the movie theater. Another teenager sued Subway because he received an 11-inch sub instead of a footlong, which they advertised, and I think he won that lawsuit. And then, uh, and then there's this famous case in the U.S. Uh, back in 1994. This woman sues McDonald's because the cup didn't say, the coffee cup that she was drinking out, out of didn't say hot or caution hot, and she spilt it on herself. I wonder if some of you have heard of that. There was a TV show called Judge Judy. Have you heard of that? Yeah, people are nodding that you have that here. That's very unfortunate. <laughs> and there's that, that you all know the show. Um, this judge, this kind of stern, angry judge, she takes on these really ridiculous cases and she sends people home crying. And in season 12, the program drew in 9.9 .9 million viewers. I mean, that's 9.9 .9 million people watching each episode of Judge Judy. And they're giving up 30 minutes of their day, precious time, to watch people fight over the dumbest things ever. Now, 2,000 years ago, in the city of Corinth, there was this lawsuit. It was a trivial lawsuit. It was probably like a, one of these Judge Judy types of lawsuits. And what you have is you have these two Christians, and they're fighting over money. And ultimately, one guy sues another guy, and as you just read, Paul is angry about it. He is not happy at the situation in Corinth. And tonight, we are going to look at two things. We're going to look at what happened in Corinth. We'll look at the situation. We'll study the, each verse and unpack what it means. And then we'll look at um, the response. Why does it matter to us today? So what happened and why does it matter? So let's look at those two points. What exactly happened? Well, it all began when Paul uh, wrote a letter to the church that was experiencing all sorts of problems. Now, as you know, and as I've stated before, the church was in Corinth. Now, some of this will be a little bit repetitive from last sermon. But Corinth was like an ancient version of Las Vegas. It was a morally bankrupt city. It was not the kind of place where you would bring your kids for a holiday. The main temple in Corinth was up on this kind of hill, this mountain. It was a temple to Aphrodite. Aphrodite was the goddess of love. And in that temple or around that temple, prostitutes would live. And at night they would go down into the city and they would make money and the money would be used to fund the temple. So that's the kind of city that we're talking about. Sexual immorality is rampant in Corinth. Just about anything went. Uh, every form of sexual deviancy went. Um, prostitution, um, uh, homosexuality, having multiple affairs, adultery, all of it was acceptable in Corinth, except one thing, and we learned the other week that what was not permitted in Corinth, incest. But just about everything else was okay in Corinth. Uh, the Corinthians would throw these wild parties. They were called symposiums. And it was basically this house party for the rich and famous. And if you had money or enough money, you would attend one of these parties and you would begin the party by, uh, by toasting to one of the many Greek gods. And then the night would kind of devolve into debauchery and all kinds of wild um, things. 
When it came to religion, there were endless options. In Corinth, you had you could take your pick of any god. You had a goddess for death, or a god for death. You had a goddess for love. You had uh, the the main god Zeus. He was the all-powerful god. Um, there was a god for life. There was a god for wealth and a god for health. And you just pick whatever god you wanted, and you would worship that god. The Corinthians. There was a word that you could use to describe the Corinthians: unrighteous. The Corinthians were unrighteous. What does it mean to be unrighteous? It means that someone does not do what is right in God's eyes. And Paul in Romans says that the whole world, the unbelieving world is unrighteous because we do not naturally in our sinful state do what God requires of us. So the Corinthians, like everyone else in the world, they are unrighteous. And have a look at verse 9. Paul makes it pretty clear in verse 9 that unrighteous people, including the Corinthians and anyone, really, who does not do what is right in God's eyes, that they cannot inherit God's kingdom, meaning they cannot live with God eternally. In other words, God will not share his house with people who hate him. And that makes sense, right? Would you share your house with people who hate you? Would you willingly take in a flatmate who hates your guts, who doesn't want to abide by your rules, who is constantly opposing you and rebelling against you? Of course not. And so Paul tells us here in verse 9 that the unrighteous cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And he lists off the common sins that were prevalent in Corinthian society. But he could have listed off more sins. You know, he includes uh, sexual immorality, and homosexuality, and he includes uh, uh, thievery, and he includes swindling, but he could include a whole host of sins. He could include gossip. He could include murder. He could include all kinds of sins. And what he's saying here is he is saying that the unrighteous um, cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Now look at Um, at verse 10. What does verse 10 say? Well, it indicates that there is an opportunity for unrighteous men and women to be forgiven, that God has a plan to wash unrighteous people, right, of their sin. And when Paul arrived in Corinth, probably in the year 49 or 50 AD, what did he do? He preached that message. He taught the Corinthians that they were unrighteous, but that there was a way for them to be made right with God. That there was a way for them to be forgiven of their unrighteousness. doesn't matter what your sin is. doesn't matter, matter whether you're a murderer, whether you're a homosexual, whether you're an adulterer, whether you're a thief, whether you're a swindler. What does he say here? He says that there is an opportunity to be washed, to be cleansed of our sin. That unrighteous people can be made right with God, that God has a plan to justify the unrighteous through the death of Christ, and that he has a plan to sanctify the unrighteous. And what does that mean? Basically, it means that he has a plan to make them holy, to change their hearts and lives. And so this is the message that Paul was preaching to the Corinthians. And what happened? These Corinthians came to faith. They became followers of Jesus. A church was planted. They were converted. And at first, people were 
would have been really excited. Things were changing. But over time, old habits began to rear their ugly head. At first, when the Corinthians were converted, there was probably a dramatic change. But in time, these Christians began going back to their old ways. The Christians began acting like Corinthians again. And what we see in this passage is that the worship services in this church started looking more like symposiums, where people were getting drunk, where the rich were dividing themselves from the poor. And we see that sexual immorality, different types of it, start um, taking uh, effect in, in the church. People begin practicing sexual immorality again. And we see here in chapter 6 that instead of dealing with conflict like, Corinthian, like Christians, they deal with conflict like Corinthians. And we, we hear this story here in this chapter of these two men, and they're, they're having a dispute. They're fighting over money. And in verse 7, we read that one man defrauds another. He swindles the other man out of his money. And what happens? A feud breaks out. And instead of dealing, like I said, instead of dealing with their conflict like Christians should deal with their conflict, they deal with their conflict like Corinthians. They take their dispute, not to the church. Where do they take their dispute? To the court. Now, you probably, when I, I say the word court, you probably have an idea of what a court is or what a courthouse looks like. You probably, there's these images in your mind of the courtroom. Well, take all of those images and throw them in the bin. Because in the ancient world, the courtroom looked much different. Yet, in the ancient world, you didn't have judges wearing funny wigs, holding gavels in their hand. In the ancient world, the court would meet in a public forum in like a marketplace. They'd meet outside. And anyone could attend. The Greeks loved watching court cases. I mean, they loved, they would have loved Judge Judy. But they loved watching court cases. It was like a, a classic kind of pastime. You know, we, we go on a Friday night to watch Richmond smash Collingwood. They went to the courtroom. No one found that funny. But they did. They rocked up to the town square and watched the trial unfold. And a, a public trial, in a pu public trial, there would, be, there would be no judge, but there would be tons of jurors, probably 100, 200, 300, 400, 500 jurors. And, they, and sitting on the jury would be your average Corinthian citizen, probably rich. Some of them had mistresses. Nearly all of them would have worshipped one of the multitudes of, of the Greek gods, and they would have lived kind of your classic Corinthian lifestyle, a lifestyle of sex, money, and power. These are the kind of the unrighteous people that Paul is talking about. And so that's the court system in, in ancient Greece. And so these two Corinthian men who are fighting they decide to completely ignore what Jesus says about sorting out their disputes. They completely ignore the wisdom of the church, the wisdom of the Apostle Paul, the wisdom of God's word, and they take their uh, dispute to the court where men who, who practice all kinds of um, sin and sexual immorality, these men are going to judge the case. And they air their dirty laundry before the entire community. Now, can you imagine, can you imagine being one of the jurors that is trying this case? 
it's your turn for jury duty, and you're watching these two Christians fight in the streets. And what are they squabbling about? Money. And, um, and here comes this Christian, and he's supposed to be all about following Jesus and loving God and loving neighbor, but here they are, and uh, they are acting like a couple of hypocrites. And the juror is probably thinking to himself, is this what Christianity is all about? Is this how Christians treat each other? Is this the way that we are supposed to be, or that, that they follow Jesus? Squabbling over money and fighting over property? What does Paul think about it? And you'll notice the tone in this chapter. If you look at the chapter, you'll see that throughout the chapter, uh, each sentence is punctuated with what? Question marks and exclamation marks. A series of rhetorical questions and angry remarks. Quite clearly, Paul is not happy about the situation. He's indignant. And he asks the Corinthians a series of questions, most of them rhetorical questions. And you'll see the first question in verse 1. What's the first question in verse 1? One translation puts it this way. How dare you? How dare you, he says. How dare you file a lawsuit and ask a secular court uh, to deal with it instead of taking it to the church. And he's upset because this really petty dispute is being broadcasted in the streets of Corinth. And it concerns the church and it concerns the reputation of the church and the Christians who belong to that church. There's a second question in verse 2. What's the second question? Don't you know? Don't you know, says Paul. Don't you know that you are judges? You will judge the world. And then in verse 3, he says, don't you know, you will judge angels. Isn't that an interesting remark? He's saying there, and I, I, it, this, this had never struck me until I read this passage. You will judge the world, he says, and you will judge angels. What does that mean? Well, it could mean a couple of things. It could mean that in some way, when Jesus returns at the final judgment, Christians will somehow participate in that final judgment. Now, what does that look like? I couldn't tell you. But in some way, Christians will participate in that final judgment. It could mean that. It could also mean that one day we will rule in heaven with Christ. And that's what 1 Timothy 3 says, doesn't it? It says if we have died with Jesus, we will also reign with him. If we endure, uh, we are promised a place in his kingdom, a room in our Father's house, a position in the new heavens and the new earth. We will inherit heaven, and we will live with Christ there and rule with him there. But, again, what does that look like? I don't know. <laughs> the Bible doesn't give us details. But the point, the main point here that Paul is making or Paul's intention here is not to give us a full theology of heaven or to teach us what will happen in the next life. Paul is actually using that fact and he's using it to make a comparison. And what he's doing is he's comparing a future day 
to the present day. He's comparing heaven with earth. He's comparing a small judgment call with a big judgment call. That's what he's doing. And he's saying to the Corinthians here, by highlighting that fact of the final judgment, he's saying to them, you know, this little dispute, it's a tiny dispute, it's a small little grievance, and if you can't even figure out a small grievance in this life, what makes you think that you will be ready for the final judgment that is to come? Or what makes you think that you are suitable to reign with Christ in his kingdom? And think of the comparison this way. Think of it like this. Um, it would be like um, a doctor. You know, a doctor is supposed to perform surgery, but he doesn't even know how to put on a bandage. Or imagine an engineer. He's supposed to build bridges, but he doesn't even know how to screw in a light bulb. And likewise, Paul is saying to the Corinthians, you know, one day you will inherit the, the new heavens and the new earth. You will, make, you will participate in the final judgment. And you don't even know how to solve your own disputes. Isn't that ironic? And that's what he's getting at here. He's showing them how ironic the situation is. Now, the problem isn't just about these two men squabbling. There's another problem. And Paul's not just upset with the men, he's upset with the church. Why is he upset with the church? Because this, the church, again, is sitting on their hands. They're doing nothing. They're watching people sin, and they're not responding to it. Like I said the other week, they're taking a she'll be right approach. They're very passive. They're not dealing with the problem. And so, Paul is upset with this. And look at his indignation. Look at verse 5. What does he say in verse 5? Shame. Shameful. It's shameful that these people who understand God's law, who have the power of the Holy Spirit, who know right from wrong, that these people who follow Jesus, they can't even figure out the most trivial dispute over money. Isn't that sad? And it's one of these situations where, where no one wins and everyone loses. Now think about all that was lost in this conflict. Money was lost. A relationship was lost. Unity was lost. The church's reputation was lost. An opportunity to present the gospel is lost. So much is lost. You know, on the news, obviously, we've been thinking about this conflict in the Middle East. Massive conflict. People are bombing each other. Terrorists are attacking each other. What do people gain by fighting? What do you gain by fighting with someone? Nothing. In fact, Paul says in verse 7 that it would have been better if either one of these men took the blow, put aside their pride, cut their losses, admitted defeat, because, because in fighting they have more to lose than they do to gain. And as Christians, we need to think about that. Our name, our reputation, our money, our status, ultimately, it is less important than Christ and less important than his church. So that was the situation in Corinth. What can we learn from it? Well, first, sin is the problem. 
the main ingredient in every conflict is sin. Now, sin was the main ingredient. Um, sin is the main in, was the main ingredient in the Garden of Eden. Before sin entered the world, there were no wars, there were no fighting, there was no relational breakdown. But once Adam sinned against God, it created immediate conflict be- between God and Adam. And then it created conflict between Adam and Eve. And then it created conflict between Cain and Abel. And from that moment on, the world was filled with conflict. So sin is the problem. Why do people fight? Well, they fight because they want something they can't get. That's what James says in the fourth chapter of his letter. Let me read it for you. James says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from the sinful desires that reside within your heart? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet. You cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. I want. I want. Almost every single fight begins with those two words. I want. I want. I want comfort. I want vengeance. I want love. I want money. I want happiness. The root cause of just about every fight is selfish desires, those words. I want. Now, a good desire or a bad desire that has become the most important desire, a desire that has become more important to you than your kids or your family or your church or your faith, those kinds of desires that reside within our hearts, those are the desires, says James, that, are, that cause war, that destroy relationships. I want. Think about the most common things that people fight over. What's, I was trying to rack my brain and think about what the most common thing that we fought over in our home as a kid. And I think that was a remote control. I think we still have those, right? Remote controls. My brother and I fought over the remote control. I had bruises. I think once he threw a remote control at my head. Why do people fight over the remote control? Because they want control. Both sides are saying, I want control. I want control over the TV. And I don't want you to be in control. And it's this desire for control that becomes the most important desire, more important than the person that you're fighting with. Paul Tripp, in one of his books, tells a story about a woman named Jeannie. Jeannie's home wasn't really a home. It was more of a museum, he said. No one in the family could live comfortably because Jeannie was obsessed with cleaning her house. It was her ultimate desire. It was more important than any relationship that she she could have possibly had. And it caused so much unrest and so much fighting in the family because this desire, a good desire to be clean, became an ultimate desire. And that ultimate desire was much more important than her kids, her husband, possibly even her faith. Now think about the conflict in Corinth. Two men are fighting over money. Money is possessing them. Money is the most important thing that they have. And the thing that is preventing these two men from reconciling is is their love for money. 
their, their greed. Let me ask you a question. And it might be a bit of a personal question, but I'm not going to, obviously I'm not going to record the answer. You don't need to, please don't yell out the answer. But I just want you to think about this. What is the thing that you want most, more than anything else in the world? What do you want most? Is it comfort? Is it approval? Is it respect? Is it success? Is it money? Is it freedom? Whatever that thing is, have you ever in your life experienced conflict over that thing? Possibly, yes. When someone disrespects you, have you lashed out? When someone threatens your comfort, do you get annoyed? When someone threatens your success, does it make you angry? When someone makes you look bad, does it fill you with fury? And if so, we need to repent because we all struggle with this. We have these desires in our hearts and our lives. They've become ultimate desires. And on the podium of things that matter, sometimes our love for self or our love for money or our love for success gets the gold medal. It wins first place in our hearts. And perhaps love for God and neighbor gets second place. And the reason we fight with people, one of the reasons we fight with people, is because we value ourselves and we value these desires more than we value God and more than we value our relationships with other people at times. So the first problem is sin. There's a second problem. The second problem is forgetfulness. We forget the gospel. You know, one author said this, whenever Christians fight with each other, they display how poorly they understand the gospel. We forget the gospel. Now, there are ways that we normally and um, instinctually deal with conflict. Um, the first way is the escape response. What's the escape response? What does that look like? Well, it looks like Adam and Eve in the garden, running, hiding, ignoring, minimizing. It looks like a person who's harboring bitterness, who doesn't talk about the issues, the real issues that they're facing. This is the way that the Corinthian church was dealing with co conflict. They had the escape response. They saw a problem, and what did they do? They backed away. Not my problem. I'm not going to deal with it. And they ran. That's the escape response. The second response, often, that people, people give is the attack response. You know, there's, there's this old saying that men just, some men just like to fight. Doesn't matter what they're fighting about, they just enjoy fighting. And what does that response look like? Well, it looks like Cain killing his brother Abel. It looks like Peter cutting off a soldier's ear. It looks like these two Christian Corinthian men taking each other to court and fighting it out in the public square. And there are all sorts of unbiblical ways that we deal with conflict. I mean, there's there's ways that we deal with conflict at work. We gossip, or we slander, or we um, push people away. Um, we talk behind their back. There are all kinds of ways that we deal with conflict in ungodly and unbiblical ways. 
What is the Christian response? The Christian response is to understand what Christ has done for us. And, and then to live that out, to actively live that out for the world and for others. Let me ask you this. How many times a day do you sin? Probably all of us, too many times to count. But let's say you sin against God once per day for 365 days a year, for 90 years. How many times have you sinned? Well, if I get my maths right, it's 32,850 times in your life. And we all know that we all sin more than just once a day. But Christ forgave you for all that sin. Even if you sinned once a day, Christ forgave you more than 32,000 times. And he forgave you through his death by giving his life. And yet, there's still that little bit of bitterness in me towards my brother over the remote control 30 years ago. It's that principle that if your debt has been forgiven by God through Christ, then why don't you go and forgive your brother or your sister? What's stopping you? If you're to reflect on on all that Christ has done for you on the cross, and the, the, the blood that was shed, and the penalty that was paid, and the wrath of God that was satisfied, if, if you can reflect on that, then what's stopping you from going to the guy who stole the remote from you and forgiving him? And that's the principle here. As we reflect on what Christ has done for us, it actually compels us to go make things right with other people. Now, everything that I said um, sounds very hard. But the third problem that we have is that we try to fix the problem ourselves. And this can be hard for people who are trying to mend a relationship any relationship requires effort and hard work and humility and patience and wisdom, and we are tempted to try and fix the problem in our own strength, with our own resources, but we can't. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Paul said that we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. Jesus also said that we are weak, but he is strong. So as we think about conflict and conflict in the church and dealing with conflict, we need to recognize that that is not something that we can do in our own strength with our own, with our own resources. God gives us every resource that we need to deal with conflict. He gives us the tools we need to resolve conflict. And what are those tools? Well, first we need God Himself. We need His grace. We need His Spirit. We need His help. And it's the Spirit, isn't it? You all know this. It's, it's the Spirit of God that takes your heart and changes it. God takes the most stubborn, thorny, unrelenting hearts, and through, through the preaching of his word, through the gospel, he changes that heart. He gives you a new heart. He softens the, the rough edges and helps you to live in a way that is in accordance with his will. So we need God's grace. We can't do it without God's grace. The second tool that God gives us is his word. We don't have to wonder how to deal with conflict because the Bible basically gives us a perfect paradigm. I mean, just think of Matthew chapter 18. You have a whole way of dealing with conflict in Matthew chapter 18. 
simple principles that I can, any of us could recite off by heart. If you have an issue, go talk to the person who's offended you. And if you can't sort it out, get one or two wise, godly people involved and let them help you. And if, you, if, if those people can't come to a resolution, then get the whole church involved so that you can solve these problems. And so the Word of God, I mean, that's not the only wisdom the Word of God has. There's other wisdom in Scripture that helps us as we resolve problems. The third tool God gives us is the church. And I think this is why Paul was so angry with the Corinthian church. Because this group of believers saw a dispute. They saw two men who were struggling in their faith. He saw two people who couldn't work it out, and they thought, not my problem. You deal with it on your own. And they, they, they um, shirked their responsibility, their God-given responsibility, to help these two men resolve the problems that they have. The fourth tool God gives us is practical wisdom. James said that if we lack wisdom, we can ask it of God. And the Corinthians, they lacked wisdom. They took this trivial case and brought it into the, the, the Corinthian court. And, and that lacked wisdom. Now, I think it's important that I say something about that. Um, because one of the questions that people have, especially when they read this passage, is, is it okay for me to take someone else to court? Now, most people never enter, uh, have to experience that scenario. But there are some people in the church who do have to experience that scenario. And the question is, is it okay for me to go to court? Should I go to court? Is it wise for me to go to court? And the answer, I think, I believe, is yes and no. The answer is no. Because when you're dealing with conflict, when you have like a lawsuit between two believers, Paul is clear here. The answer is no. You need to sort this out amongst yourself. But when, when dealing with things that are criminal or dealing with cases um, where the court has actually summoned you to go to court or a divorce or things that require legal action. Um, there are situations where actually it is wise to go to court, where it is wise to get a judgment uh, from a judge. But the general, but let's not let those exceptions uh, affect how we view the general principle. The general principle here is that Christians need to nut it out amongst themselves. You, when you have a problem with someone, you need to approach them and deal with that problem in a godly way. So that's, that's the problem in Corinth. And there are some practical points of application for you to think about tonight as you um, reflect on this passage. But let me just conclude by saying this. Remember the world that the Apostle Paul was living in. He was living in a world that was filled with division. He was living in a world where Jews did not mix with Gentiles. Slaves did not mix with freed people. The rich did not mix with the poor. Um, when the church was born, when the Corinthian church was planted, it broke all social rules in Corinth. Prostitutes would pray with former Pharisees. Isn't that wild? The rich would eat with the poor. Jews would worship with Gentiles. It was radical. And it was so radical that people began to notice that the church has become different 
than the world. And as Paul planted churches across the empire, Jesus' prayer was slowly but surely answered, that God's people might be one as Jesus is one with his Father, that we might embrace the gospel of Jesus, which changes our lives forever. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, without a doubt, this passage is difficult. Not difficult to understand, but it's difficult to practice for all of us because we all face conflict and many of us are tempted to to deal with conflict in unbiblical ways. But Lord, we pray that you would help us to to live according to your word, to um, seek to apply the gospel to our conflict, that we might learn to uh, reconcile with our brothers and sisters, that we might learn to repent of our sin and and, uh, that we might learn to forgive our neighbors. So we pray this all in Jesus' name.